Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to the FT's political podcast and another momentous week to reflect on as David Cameron brandished his draft deal intended to help him keep Britain in the EU pilloried in the right-wing press and by some of his own MPs, the PM nevertheless emerged in a bullish mood and confident he has his opponents on the run. I'm George Parker, the FT's political editor, standing in for Seb Payne, who's in New Hampshire, watching the latest crazy instalment of the US presidential race. I'm joined today by a cast of experts to look over the outlined new settlement for Britain in Europe and the political repercussions. Later, you'll hear from our top team, Janan Ganesh and Kate Allen, on the Tory fallout. But first, the deal itself. Philip Stevens is here, our senior global politics commentator, along with Robert Oxley from the Vote Leave campaign, and in the in corner, Lucy Thomas from Britain's Stronger in Europe. Philip, was this outline deal presented by the European Council President Donald Tusk a set of significant reforms, as claimed by David Cameron, or a steaming pile of manure, as declared by The Sun? Well, measured against David Cameron's ambitions as set out a few months ago, he's not done too badly. Measured against the deeper ambition to completely reshape our relationship with the European Union, to fundamentally reform, to get some full-on treaty change, these are the sort of things he was saying a couple of years ago, it falls very flat, I'm afraid. This is a deal which is helpful in parts, harmless in other parts, but does not fundamentally change Britain's relationship with the rest of the European Union. And does that matter? It does matter if the campaign, if the referendum campaign, is fought on the basis of the deal, because in which case I think David Cameron could well lose. If the campaign is fought on the more fundamental question, which is, are we better off in Europe with all its problems and irritations than outside Europe, then I think the stay campaign, the remain campaign, has a much, much stronger position, not least because the leave campaign can't decide on the alternative to your, uh, to staying in. Well, Rob Oxley from the Vote Leave campaign, we'll leave aside that provocation from Philip about models of exit. But David Cameron said this week that he thought he'd got basically what he set out to achieve in these negotiations. Do you think that's true? Well, look, David Cameron set the bar for his renegotiation pretty low from the start, but he's even managed to miss that. You know, he decided to try and fix the problems of immigration, as he said in his own words, by changing and limiting benefits. Now, we know that won't actually have any impact. And we know that actually what he set out he would get, what he promised in his manifesto, he hasn't managed. All of this, you know, including spin over red cards, which won't actually ever be used because of the thresholds and many of the other things in the renegotiation. They won't even have very much weight because what we've seen is that effectively promising Britain some reform, but saying you'll just have to trust the EU, EU judges, the EU courts. And that is already falling apart. We've already had Martin Schulz today saying it won't be irreversible. So in terms of the renegotiation, David Cameron has had a stinker. He's delivered a trivial set of reforms, 
And it certainly won't amount to what he said he would get for the British people. So I think a lot of people will just conclude that he was determined to stay in no matter what. This was a PR exercise. But, you know, the PR man has even failed at the PR exercise. OK, Lucy Thomas from Britain's Stronger in Europe. He set the bar pretty low and he didn't clear the bar. Well, I think it's funny to hear Rob saying all of this now, because these are things which Rob and his colleagues on the more Eurosceptic side have been calling for for years. So whether it's about sovereignty, getting Britain out of ever closer union, making sure that non-Eurozone countries like Britain aren't consistently outvoted, that we can complain if there are things we don't like, if it's about cutting red tape. I think these are all things which people care about and, you know, they are important reforms. And it's important also to remember that it's an ongoing process. So British prime ministers throughout history have successfully changed Europe and reformed it and actually got great wins for Britain, whether it's Margaret Thatcher with her handbag demanding the rebate. You know, these things have often been Britain going there, having the argument and succeeding. So I think You know, as Philip said, the Prime Minister has broadly got agreement on what the four areas that he set out. Philip, how does this renegotiation compare with the one conducted by Harold Wilson before the 1975 referendum, whether Britain should stay in the old EEC? I think it's utterly different simply because the world we live in is very different. One, we've been in the EU for more than 40 years now. Back in 75, people were really, we'd only been in a couple of years. And people were really being asked whether we want to stay in something we just joined. So it was really a sort of do you want to join referendum. This is with all the experience of the EU and in a completely different world, do you want to stay in? And I think it's different, too, because in those days, you you know, shenanigans were sort of could be carried out in dark corridors and rooms. And the media, the world outside didn't really get a look in as Harold Wilson and his ministers pulled one trick out after the next. Now, Rob, earlier on alluded to the fact that these negotiations may not be the defining factor in the referendum campaign, that actually we're going to get on to much bigger questions about economic security, national security, Britain's place in the world. Do you think that this negotiations will be quickly forgotten about once the deal's done and we move on to bigger issues? Well, I think number 10 are probably going to try and change their plan on this because the initial plan was to get this renegotiation, to get something substantial and then basically ride a 10, 15 point bounce in the polls that the Prime Minister would get off such a renegotiation and recommending a deal and kind of just basically get to polling day as quickly as possible. Now, the problem they've got at the moment is that you know, the day after the renegotiation happened, everyone went, is that it? You know, it got absolutely hammered in the press. And I think you know, we've not really seen headlines as bad as that since the Omni Shumbles budget, which, if you can believe the polling of the last kind of five years, was probably one of the low points for the Conservatives in government. So I think they are definitely in trouble over this renegotiation. They will want to move it on very quickly. But the problem is, is that by part of this renegotiation, David Cameron has admitted that there are problems with the EU. You know, his business secretary is on record as saying that the costs outweigh the benefits at the moment. So he's going to be telling his cabinet, not only did I say that there were these problems, I failed to fix them, but you still need to back me. That is not going to be a very convincing message on the campaign trail. Doesn't everyone know that there are problems with the EU? No one's saying, look, this is perfect. What they're saying, the Remain campaign, is that there are problems still, there will be problems. But relative to the alternative or alternatives, because we don't really know which alternative Vote Leave wants, it's the best we can get. Rob, now is your opportunity to answer Philip's question. What alternative does Vote Leave want? Well, I think we're very clear that if you look at the incentives, whether it be the trade gaps, whether you look at the way that the EU is a shrinking share of world GDP, if you look at the fact that markets and economies outside of the European Union have been better at negotiating trade deals, that there is a strong, bright future for the UK outside of the EU. 
Now, I know that basically you want us to define in exact detail uh, you know, what type of treaties that will happen. Well, what we were very clear about is that there is going to be a vote to leave. And then after that, you would have a discussion. It would start a negotiation process. And if that negotiation process starts, you can see all the incentives. That's a simple question. I would would say that that we'd get a a free trade deal and have the kind of access that other countries have without necessarily having to put up with all the control and all of Brussels that comes from Brussels. But I know that the other side, they want to create those straw men. They can't even be honest about the straw men when they attack them. But, you know, there are two choices. Either you can say that no better deal is possible or a better deal is possible. We think voting to leave the safer option will deliver that better deal. So what's fascinating about this, on the ballot paper is remain or leave. We know what remain is, as Philip says, with all its imperfections. Leave, you're saying, take a gamble. We're not going to actually tell you what the deal is. And if you, for example, talk about a free trade deal, others talk about Norway or Switzerland, free trade deal doesn't cover services. That's 80% of Britain's economy. Financial services, for example, currently benefit from the single financial passport. We would no longer have that. They account for 10% of Britain's tax take. So these issues that would be huge for Britain's economy and trade, jobs and prices, you're not being honest with them. And I think it's such a cop out to sit there and say, actually, we don't have to tell you about the precise model. You absolutely do. British people want to know what does leave look like. Well, first, if we're going to talk about honesty, you should admit that there are free trade deals with the EU which do include services. So let's get that fact straight for a starter. And secondly, if you do look at the relationship that the UK has with the EU, you can do something better. You will vote to leave. And in a Remain option, the idea that Remain is just remaining in an imperfect world, it's not. It's about remaining part of an EU which integrates further, that the Eurozone gets called... An ever closer union. An ever closer union, which a judge literally today has said, one of the top judges in the UK, which has been dealing with these kind of case laws, has said that will make no difference. It is irreversible. So what we know is that if we vote to remain, it will mean more power to Brussels, more money to Brussels. It will mean more caucusing. Outside, vote to leave is a start of the negotiation process. But I think that is a safer option than what is on the other side of the ballot. OK, Lucy Thomas, finally, your campaign chief, Lord Stuart Rose, said this week he thought that you would win by a significant margin. Given the adverse polls that we've seen since the deal was published, do you think he was wise to have said that? I think it was a a sort of throwaway remark. He first of all said just over 50% is winning. So, you know, that's what we're aiming for. And he would like to win with a substantial margin. I think polls today are a reflection of where people currently are before there's been a campaign, before the issue of the EU has really sort of struck people and they've thought about it. But I think it's good to know where people currently are and where people currently stand because there has historically been a bit of complacency, I think, by those on my side of the argument who just assume that we might win. But actually, the polls are tight and we have to do our work and and get our messages out and explain to people in tangible ways how they benefit from being in the EU and how we're safer and stronger and better off. Lucy Thomas, Rob Oxley and Philip Stevens, thanks very much. And we're joined now by Janan Ganesh, our political columnist, and Kate Allen, our political correspondent, who has a special focus on the Conservative Party currently undergoing one of its periodic spasms on Europe. So, David Cameron has his draft EU deal. Janan, how much support can he expect to get from the Cabinet for what he's negotiated? Much more support than I would have envisaged three years ago at the beginning of this whole process, the Bloomberg speech where David Cameron announces his intention to renegotiate and then put it before the public. At the time, I envisaged quite a deep split in the cabinet, a very deep split in the parliamentary party, maybe upwards of a half of Tory MPs campaigning against his intention to stay in the European Union. It now looks like, in parliamentary terms, fewer than 100, I would guess, Tory MPs doing that. 
and in the cabinet a handful and no one more senior than I would imagine Ian Duncan Smith, the welfare secretary. So it looks like, and I might be speaking too early, nobody like Theresa May, the Home Secretary, or Boris Johnson, not yet in the Cabinet, but a bigger star than most people who are in the Cabinet. No one of that significance will campaign against the Prime Minister. One person we haven't heard much from since the deal was announced is George Osborne. Given they were supposed to be our lead negotiator, do you find that a little bit strange? A little bit. I mean, I think part of it is that Osborne is also day by day involved in making sure the deal actually goes through, because there's a difference between what's been agreed with Donald Tusk, the preliminary deal, and what actually emerges on February 18th, 19th in the summit. So there's a lot of technical work in nailing this. And a lot of it is to do with Treasury work, because it's economics and the issue of financial regulation in particular. But it's also an unpopular deal amongst many Eurosceptics. So he has an incentive not to speak out too vociferously in favour at the moment. Yeah. Now, Kate Allen, how important is Boris Johnson in this referendum campaign? And how certain do you think David Cameron is now that he'll have him on board? Well, Boris is a great personality. He has real traction in the country, in, in people's hearts and minds, in a way that most Tory politicians don't. So whichever way Boris jumps is going to be a really big issue, and he could potentially be extremely influential for whichever side of the campaign he picks. So far, Boris has been keeping what some of his friends call a low-key and loyal approach. He kind of has his own eye on his future career. He's hoping for a cabinet position after the referendum. So he doesn't really want to get on David Cameron's bad side. And also, you know, although much has been made about his potential Euroscepticism, fundamentally, a lot of people think his heart lies on the continent. And, and therefore, although there may be a bit of bluster, it's looking as though Mr Cameron's got a fairly good chance of, of keeping him on board. Yeah, so Boris was brought up in Brussels. His dad was a Eurocrat. I've always been a little bit sceptical about his own scepticism. What's the sort of offer David Cameron can make to Boris to give him some political cover to come on board? So we saw this week that Boris has been kind of floating this idea of having some kind of sovereignty law. This feeds into Michael Gove's attempts to rework the Human Rights Act. A big touchstone issue for Eurosceptics is, is this idea of the supremacy of European court. And they're really looking for some kind of something that makes it feel as though sovereignty is being repatriated to Britain on that. Boris has suggested this kind of sovereignty law idea could potentially be a bit more window dressing than real substantive legal change from the point of view of our constitutional experts. But it may have the kind of traction with the British public that what Michael Gove is looking for is something that makes people feel as though it's British rights in Britain rather than European court. It's that public perception, which maybe Boris's idea might perhaps help with. Yeah, I think perception could be everything there, because the moment you try to reverse European Union law, you're in some sort of constitutional crisis. But it does look a bit like there's a coordinated plan coming up here, doesn't there, Janan, that you have Theresa May comes out basically in support of the draft agreement and Boris Johnson being held in reserve for the final deal later this month. Do you think, nevertheless, the PM should be worried if cabinet ministers like Chris Grayling, Ian Duncan-Smith end up in the exit camp? Not particularly. I would love to know how many people in the country know who Chris Grayling is. I imagine IDS has a higher name recognition because he was a Tory leader over a decade ago. But none of these figures, Theresa Villiers is another one, the Northern Ireland Secretary, has the clout to be the face and voice of the out campaign in a really persuasive way. And I imagine what the out campaign or the leave campaign will end up having to do is find a leader who is not political and almost a major FTSE 100 CEO, someone outside of politics because their options within politics are so limited. And if anything, that's almost an advantage for them because their vulnerability is this question of economic risk. Is leaving the EU a material threat to incomes, jobs, interest rates, etc.? If so, then the ideal leader of their campaign will be from the business world, 
not the political world. There are risks in that, aren't there, of course, because we've seen how difficult it is for business people to move into the political arena, particularly an arena like this where the detail is so complex and the political heat will be so high. The record of business people transferring into politics is absolutely extraordinary because you think these guys can't be idiots. You know, some of them will have made from scratch hundreds of millions of pounds. And I can think of several Tory MPs who I won't name, but who have gone through that extraordinary career in business, entered politics with great hopes. Some of them hope to be leader and they've disappeared without trace because they just don't get public communication. The idea of reducing a message to its basics, being collegiate with people who might not be as technically impressive as you, all of that sort of slightly human stuff. And so finding a business person will be tough who's good enough to lead the campaign. You've already seen Stuart Rose on the other side making elementary mistakes of communication. Getting the name of his campaign, for example. Well, getting the name of the in-campaign wrong, but also, uh, I think, this week saying that they would win by a substantial margin, which is, A, I don't think correct. I think it'll be closely fought. And B, even if it is correct, you don't say it. Yeah. Now, Kate, turning to the mood in the Conservative Parliamentary Party, there were some quite sort of strongly worded exchanges in the House of Commons today when David Cameron came back to explain his draft deal. But overall, I think the mood was more courteous and respectful than we might have expected. Why do you think that was? The mood in the Parliamentary Party is that they are totally haunted by what happened in the 1990s. And particularly the newer intakes of MPs, 2010 and 2015, really are pushing very strongly on this idea that they do not want civil war to open up in the party again. So we saw this letter, I think it was last week, from the 2015 intake pleading with the rest of the party to ensure that it was a civil, fair fight and that they focused on the fact that at the start of what could potentially be a decade of governance if the Labour Party failed to get their act together in time for the next election. That's very different to where the party was in the 90s when they were gradually sliding out of power. So the idea is we've got a lot of other stuff to deliver. Please don't let Europe become what it became to the party, the, the killer factor. In you know, Again, let, don't let's fight that war again. And interestingly, you had David Cameron telling his MPs to basically ignore their very Eurosceptic constituency associations and to vote with their hearts. That's all right for him to say it, but these associations are quite autonomous, aren't they? Does, are they not putting themselves at risk? They are quite autonomous. And we saw some of the plans that Lord Feldman is bringing forward to maybe exert a bit more central control over these associations as well as part of his review of the party's structure and governance, which the FT's reported on this week, which also probably won't endear the central party and the Westminster party very much to these independent, Eurosceptic, conservative associations in the country. The idea that a lot of these backbenchers will uh, necessarily listen to Mr Cameron's appeal to vote with their hearts rather than with their heads, they're kind of, some of them are facing losing their seats in the boundary reform. If they're going to maintain their parliamentary career, they really probably need to be projecting a certain sense of Euroscepticism in order to appeal to the selection panels that they may be facing in the coming years. And Janine, looking back on what's been quite a crucial week for David Cameron, how do you think it's gone? The deal wasn't hugely impressive. Uh, certainly compared to the Bloomberg speech he gave three years ago, much less fundamental. I think he used the word fundamental in that speech, a much less fundamental change than he envisaged at the time. So that sort of falls into the debit column. But an equally unexpected achievement on the positive side is keeping his cabinet together. I find it almost miraculous that he's been able to keep dissent on this issue to such a minimum in his parliamentary party and in his own cabinet. And I think that's a lot to do with things that we always suspected he was lousy at, which is the day-by-day backslapping and twisting of arms and collegiate man management that he seems to have neglected in the past but has become pretty good at on this issue because it is so existential. So if he does go into the campaign with no more than, say, five or six cabinet members against him, no more than 70, 80, 90, maybe max 100 MPs against him, 
I think his chances of stitching everything back together again after the result, if he wins the referendum, are actually looking pretty good. I remember writing two or three years ago, this will be the biggest Tory split since the Corn Laws in the middle of the Victorian period. And I'm sort of embarrassed to look back on it because I now think it won't even be as big as the splits they had under IDS, under William Hague, under John Major in the relatively recent past. And Kate, just finally, there was a YouGov poll for The Times conducted after the draft deal was published, which showed the Leave campaign with a substantial lead over the Remain campaign. How seriously do you think we should be taking the polls at the moment? Well, the polls were all over the place. You know, this comes quite shortly after we saw a poll stating the absolute opposite. I think the key thing that pollsters emphasise is that a lot of people don't necessarily really know which way they're going to vote until they've seen the issues being aired and they've engaged in the debate and we're much further down the process. So whatever people may say they're going to do is quite soft at at this kind of stage in in a campaign. So also there's a bit of contradiction in there because within that, some of the polls, you know, which suggest people in favour of leaving, Actually, if you say to them, what if David Cameron got a good deal from Europe, then suddenly they swing in favour quite strongly of staying. So it just goes to show how important it is for both sides to project to the public whether this is a good deal or not. Ultimately, the public perception of whether it's a good deal could come to be the decisive factor in terms of how people vote. Hey, Talon and Janan Ganesh, thank you very much. If you enjoyed this podcast, you might enjoy the FT Money Show, the FT's most popular weekly podcast presented by me, Claire Barrett, the editor of FT Money. The Money Show comes out every Wednesday and you can download it at ft.com slash podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.